You know, no matter how we try to capture it on video or think about it, um, the rapture is going to be a horrendous event for many, many people. And it, it doesn't matter how you gloss it over. It doesn't matter how you describe it. It doesn't matter. It's going to be catastrophic. And yet it's as real as everything else in the Bible. There's going to be a day when our Lord comes back for His church. And in the blink of an eye, everything is going to change. And we've been looking at that in this series called, you know, what are the worlds going on? And we've been talking about how our world is just, it's just becoming obvious that the things that the Word of God said was going to happen has been happening. And that the clock is ticking and, it's, and we're closer as any human that's ever lived to the return of Jesus. And we've been talking about how the signs of the times, the humanism, the globalism, the revamping, the reuniting of the Roman Empire, the, the people that are turning uh, against Israel, all those kind of things are, are all in the, in the ancient manuscripts that were handed down to us as the Word of God. And we've been looking at this, and for the last couple of weeks we've been talking about this moment in human history that's coming up called the rapture. Where in the blink of an eye, Jesus is going to come back for his church. And we've been talking about how that is a signless event. It could occur at any moment, at any time. And it's interesting that this week, everybody's talking about the eclipse. And they know it's going to happen, right? Because they figured it out that the planets are going to align and the eclipse for the majority of people walking on the planet is a sure thing this week. And yet there are more signs, more evidence, more things that point us to the rapture and many, many people are going to miss it because they're not ready. And my prayer for all of us is that we don't miss it. You know, the... the interesting thing about the rapture of the church, one of many, many things, is that it is tied to some promises that Jesus made to us. And it's tied to those promises in the context of Jesus being the groom and his church being the bride. And he used, Jesus was the master at teaching us using common things so that we could understand complicated things. And so he used over and over and over the context of marriage, the covenant of marriage, to show people what the seriousness of his relationship with us was going to be. Now, we have experience with weddings. In fact, not too long ago, we had what was called the wedding of the millennium. And it was the wedding of William uh, and Kate. And the whole world seemed to stop and watch this wedding. The cost of this wedding was about $34 million. The average wedding is about 27000 in case you're trying to compare. The royal wedding cake, $80,000. Average five forty. dollars Kate Middleton's wedding gown, $434,000. The royal wedding flowers, $800,000. The ring, $136,000. It was originally Princess Diana's. 
It was estimated to be worth, in 2011, 136000 Everything, the, the wedding, the ceremony, the response, everything was about $48 million. I'm sorry, everything was about $34 million. Princess Diana's wedding was about $48 million, which in today's dollars is about $100 million, if that wants to give you a comparison. And as dazzling and detailed and world-stopping as that wedding was, it's nothing in comparison to the one that's coming for us. No matter how much we blow it up, no matter how much we think about it, no matter how much we go, oh, wow, God tells us there's a wedding coming up that's going to be incredible. And one of the things that we have to understand, anytime you read Scripture... You have to first and foremost understand that this scripture was written primarily to a first century Jewish audience. That we look in some 2,000 years later and we put our perspective on it and our definitions on it, but the word was originally written to Jewish people living in the first century. And so in order to understand the, the nuances and the complexities of what God's trying to teach us, we have to understand what a wedding meant to a first century Jewish audience. We have to understand that words have context when we read them. So for instance, if someone told you they had a flat, in the U.S. they would need a tire pressure gauge and a new tire. But if they were in England, it means they have an apartment. The context of the word, we have to understand what these words meant to the audience that it was written to. So what I would like to do to begin tonight is to talk about what a wedding meant to a first century Jewish audience. Because that's going to help us understand the promises that God has made to us. In the first century, other than the celebrated feasts at the temple, a wedding was the big event of any community. Weddings were huge. The entire process took over a year. The ceremony itself usually lasted for over a week. The entire town stopped. Everything stopped. There was nothing better other than the the feasts at the temple than a wedding. It was a huge celebration. The Bible mentions at least 20 different weddings. So let's look a bit closer at what a wedding meant to a first century Jewish person. First of all, weddings were arranged. The father would go and he would find a young lady who he thought was worthy to to marry his son. He would select, he would sometimes go to the parents, sometimes they would arrange it, but more often than not, the son actually would point his his dad in the right direction. And he would say, hey, um, go check out so-and-so. I I think that may be something that we should be doing. But the father was responsible for, for going out and identifying the bride and also going to her father for approval. Then what would happen is the groom would go to the young lady and propose to her. Now it's very interesting how they did proposals. Anytime in the Bible there was a covenant, anytime in the Bible there was a serious commitment, it was usually signified by one of two things, sharing a meal, 
or drinking a glass of wine. Wine was considered life. It was the fruit of, of all the things that they grew. It was, it was important. And so in order for a young lady to accept a marriage proposal, the groom would pour a glass of wine for her. And if she drank the wine, she was committing to the covenant. If she drank the wine, she was committing to the covenant. It's not coincidence, by the way, that Jesus said, I have a new covenant for you. This is my blood. Every time we take communion, we share in that covenant and agree again to accept what Jesus has offered us. Once the person accepts the proposal of marriage, the father of the bride will require some form of payment for the bride, a dowry of some sort. Once that payment has made, been made for the bride, the father gives his approval and the covenant becomes valid and legit in a sense. The couple is considered from that point forward betrothed. Okay? You can't break that covenant. Okay, it's sealed. It's been committed to. It's not like being someone's fiance today. In a first century Jewish audience, when you were betrothed, you were as good as married. Any infidelity was considered adultery. You were going to be married and you were essentially married. And the young ladies would wear a veil over their face to let people know that they were betrothed. So we have this commitment and it's as good as done. Contract sealed. And often a young lady and a young man would be betrothed for about a year. And the reason was they could not get married until the father said it was okay. And in order for him to say it was okay, he had to agree that the son had prepared everything appropriately. So what was the son supposed to do? Well, it turns out that the son was to go to his father's house and build a room for them to live in. That his primary responsibility was to prepare for his bride to come to him to live in the father's house. The couple would build basically an addition to the father's house so that they would have a place to live once they're married. And it took about a year to build this. Often because they also had other things going on like their routine jobs and other things. But the son was responsible for building the room, the addition to his father's house, to prepare for his bride. Now during that time, the bride is awaiting for the groom to come get her. She does not know when that day will be. It depends on when the father says it's okay. When the father has agreed that the room is ready, that everything is set up, that the timing is perfect, then the groom will go get his bride. Usually, the father will do that towards the evening of some night. It is a big celebration. Once the father gives his approval, the groom runs out to go get his bride. A quick, instant sort of thing. He and the wedding party, the male wedding party, go to get the bride. 
Usually the entire town knows when that happens. It is a loud celebration. We are going to get our bride. The bride hears him coming. The bridesmaids are very excited. The moment has come. They form a huge party that goes back to the father's house. Once the bride gets to the father's house, she's given a special preparation room where she goes through a preparation for her wedding day, which is usually the next day. Part of that preparation is the ritual cleansing that occurs when priests would go to the temple, similar to our baptism. The wedding ceremony would occur on the next day, and attendance at the wedding was usually limited to very close family and friends. A wedding feast would come later, and it would involve the entire community, and everybody would be invited to the wedding feast. But the ceremony itself was personal and intimate and restricted to a relatively small number of people. After the marriage, the couple would leave to go to their newly built honeymoon room where they would be sequestered for seven days. That night, the marriage is consummated, and there is proof of that consummation and the virginity of the woman that is given to the father of the bride in case there's ever any question later that she was not a virgin. As a result, they're alone for seven days. While they're alone for seven days, those who attended the wedding are partying big time. We read in the story of the wedding at Cana about how the water, uh, Jesus changed the water to wine. It would be during those seven days that that occurred. So the bride and groom are off getting to know one another, and the entire wedding party is celebrating this incredible wedding. That goes on for one week. Following the marriage, there would be a time when the couple would emerge and present themselves now a week later as husband and wife to the people who celebrated their wedding. After that time, the new couple would live in the father's house for the rest of their lives. In Scripture, Jesus is constantly being referred to as the bridegroom, and the church is constantly being referred to as his bride. It is the imagery and celebration of a wedding that the entire rapture and end times is set in. If we want to understand the events of end times, if we want to understand the events of the rapture, we have to put it into the context of what a first century Jewish wedding was like. So let's go a little deeper. Some of the parallels are fairly obvious, some perhaps not. The relationship is arranged by the Father on behalf of the Son. The bride must agree to surrender to the relationship, to come under the spiritual oversight and guidance of the Son. A price must be paid to the Father for the bride. Once that price is paid and the bride accepts the covenant, that deal is sealed and complete and certain. 
Though the wedding itself may be some time off, the relationship is established, sealed, and guaranteed. It cannot be broken other than by death. It was during the time of the betrothment that Mary became pregnant with the Holy Spirit. The punishment of that would have been death. Joseph said that he would basically dismiss her quietly to avoid that. They weren't yet married, but they were betrothed. The commitment was already there. Okay? So this is an important thing to understand. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What he's saying is, look, a price was paid for you. You are the bride of Christ. A dowry has been paid. In fact, a very significant payment has been made to establish this relationship. Next, the groom needs to go get ready for the bride. Promising her that he would return as quickly as possible. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That is a classic promise to a first century Jewish bride. I'm going to prepare a place. I'll be back. I'm going to do it as fast as I can. I want you to be with me forever. They are legally bound. She is betrothed to her husband, bound to remain pure. And during the time that she's betrothed, she makes sure that she is doing everything she can to stay pure to be a worthy bride for her groom when he comes. We too have been left by Jesus our groom and are in the process of sanctifying ourselves and becoming more and more worthy, more and more presentable, more and more holy as we wait for him to return. We're living right now in that time. We've been betrothed to Jesus. Our relationship has been sealed by the Father. The price for us has been paid. We are eagerly waiting the return of Jesus, and we're in the process of being and becoming more pure. Look at what Paul told the Corinthians. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present yourself as a pure virgin to Christ. And just as a first century Jewish bride was deemed to be sanctified or set apart waiting for her groom, so has the church of Christ been sanctified and set apart waiting for the return of Jesus. Ephesians 1.13 In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The promise that has been given to us, the down payment, the I guarantee you I will be back for you is the Holy Spirit. I'm going away, but I'm going to send you a helper. He will be with you. He will teach you. He will care for you. He will empower you. He will give you gifts of of fruit. And until I get back, he will be your strength and he will constantly remind you of me. 1 Corinthians 5.1 For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house made not with hands, eternal in the heavens. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So during the time that the groom is off preparing the home, the bride's got to be ready. The bride's got to be looking for the return of the groom. The bride's got to make sure she's not caught off guard. Matthew 25, 1. Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oils with their lamp. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and uh, buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. When everything is prepared, the Father will say, now. The time has come. Jesus, go get your church. Matthew twenty four thirty six. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. 1 Thessalonians 5.1 Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Matthew 24.44 Therefore you must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not expect. And just as a Jewish bride was unaware of the exact time her groom would come for her, so the church is unaware of the exact time that Jesus, the bridegroom, is going to come, although it is an important and obvious imminent event. Jesus promised us it would happen. It's repeated over and over in Scripture. I'm coming back for you. But you don't know when, so you need to be ready. And the return of Jesus for his bride is what we call the rapture. We've been through this for the last two weeks, so I don't want to go back into it. But the rapture will occur in the moment when the Father says, everything is ready. Every room is prepared. Jesus has finished all the preparations. Promise is sealed. 
Guaranteed. It's just a formality of when Jesus is coming back to get us. And when he comes back to get us, he's coming back to get us for one purpose. So that we can be united with him forever in the Father's house. And we've been studying about how in the blink of an eye, Jesus will come for his bride. He will meet us in the clouds and he will take us to the Father's house. Note that it's Jesus himself who shows us the way home to the Father. John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus says, look, you know the way to where I'm going. Bride doesn't need to know how to get to the Father's house. She just needs to know and trust that the groom's coming. Because when the groom comes, she'll get to the Father's house. He knows the way home. So Jesus tells him, look, all you need to know is me. I am the way. I am the truth. And I'm the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You want to know how to get home to your room that I've prepared for you? Know me. There's no other way. I'm the only one that has paid the price for you. I'm the only one that knows the way home. I'm the only one that the Father will allow to come bring you to Him. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus whom you've sent. So a few things to note here. Only those who surrendered to Jesus... Those who are in Christ are wed to him. In the Old Testament, it's the Jewish people, Israel, who are portrayed as the bride of Christ. But they were unfaithful and broke the covenant. The bride of Christ now, during the Gentile area, are New Testament believers. Who are raptured by Jesus to go to the Father's house. And the reason we're being raptured is to go to the Father's house to be prepared for a wedding. So, so how does all that happen? The marriage ceremony is going to take place in heaven. And it's going to involve the church. It has to take place after the judgment seat. This is something that Christians aren't often taught. There's a judgment seat coming for us. The very first thing that's going to happen after we're raptured is we will be presented to God and we will face what's called the judgment seat. We know that this happens prior to the wedding because the bride is adorned in white and has been given her purified, sanctified, glorified body. It means that everything we've done as believers is going to be tested to see if it holds up. To see if our motives were pure, if our hearts were pure, or if we were just trying to deceive people in the things that we've done. 
it corresponds to the ritual cleaning that happened in the Jewish wedding. That before we can be married to Christ, the things that we've done on this earth have to be evaluated. They have to be processed with God and with us. The first thing that will happen when we arrive at the Father's house is that we will be prepared for our wedding. And they will be prepared at what's called the judgment seat of Christ, or the Bema seat you'll hear people talk about. Romans 14.10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? Now remember, brothers talking about other believers. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Revelation twenty two twelve, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. The idea of a judgment seat goes back to the Roman athletes that, that would, after they would compete, they would come in front of, of Caesar or they'd come in front of a very important person who sat up on a throne. And one by one, the winning athletes would come to receive a crown for whatever they had done. That's where the visual image comes from. Usually it was a, a wreath of leaves or a victor's crown. And in the case of Christians, each of us will stand before Christ the judge and receive or lose rewards. Now, something that's important to understand is this has nothing to do with our salvation. We have already been sealed. That was done when we accepted Christ. We never earn our salvation. Here's what Christians hear all the time. You don't have to perform for God. That's not true. You don't have to perform to be saved by God. But once you are saved by God, everything in you should be to try to help him move his message forward. To sacrifice your needs for someone else. To do the things Jesus said to do. It's not that it maintains or keeps your salvation. It allows you to be blessed by the Jesus at the seat of Bema. Now I would also point out that there are different rewards in heaven for different behavior. There's gradations of rewards in heaven for believers. In addition, there appear to be gradations of hell for non-believers. Everybody will receive from Jesus as believers rewards and will lose out on some rewards. Look at what Jesus said in Mark chapter 12. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Matthew eleven twenty three, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. In the case of Christians, each one of us will stand before Christ the judge and either receive or lose rewards. 
Christ's judgment of us will not be in a corporate setting. Not some big class to be scolded by a teacher. It'll be individual. It'll be personal. Judgment has nothing to do with whether we remain saved. Those who've placed their faith in Christ are saved and sealed, and nothing threatens that. Believers are eternally secure in their salvation. But this judgment has to do with the reception or loss of rewards. It's more like an award ceremony for Christians. Since we aren't saved by our works but our faith instead, it's related to the things we've done since becoming a Christian. The things that we've done to help advance the gospel and to promote the kingdom. The race we've won or run, as Paul would say. Those things that we do that are solely out of gratitude for the free gift of what Jesus has done for us. And the Bible calls these things crowns. Anything that we've done in an attempt to glorify ourselves but tried to coat it with we're doing it for God is not going to survive that judgment. If we've done anything that looks really good on the outside but with the wrong motives on the inside, we ain't getting that past God. These are the things that we'll be rewarded for that we do in quiet. The things that we've done purely because we love Jesus and what he's done for us. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. It makes you wonder, if we're going to get crowns, how in the world are we going to hold on to crowns in front of the one who had the crown of thorns? What could these crowns possibly mean in the face of Jesus? The judgment of all believers will be judged fairly, thoroughly, impartially, individually, and gracefully. The Christian's judgment will focus on things like how well we stewarded the gifts that were given to us. The character of our Christian life. The, the service that we've done for other people will be laid bare. And Scripture often talks about the rewards that we will receive. Crowns that we wear. In fact, there are a number of different crowns that are mentioned in the Bible. The crown of life is given to those who persevere under trial and especially those who are martyred. The crown of glory is given to those who faithfully and sacrificially minister God's word to the flock. The imperishable crown is given to those who run the race of self-control. The crown of righteousness is for those who long for the second coming of Christ. So you may be asking yourself, well, is the judgment seat of Christ, is that an encouragement or a warning? Both. To encourage us to continue to serve God and make sure our motives are pure and our hearts are pure. It's a warning that if we fall away into things that don't please God or we do things with the wrong motives or we try to Christianize our selfish issues, that we will, in the end, not reach the goals and the rewards that Christ has been storing for us. It's possible that some Christians might be alarmed at the idea of sitting before God. 
One of the more sobering realities to ponder is that Christians who live carnal lives, they accept Christ and then they go do what they want to do, may experience some sense of shame and embarrassment at the judgment seat. Forfeit rewards that could have been theirs if they'd been faithful. Seems to be implied in 2 John 8, where John urges, Watch yourself that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Loss of rewards here are presented as a potential for believers. Not the loss of our salvation, but the loss of rewards. So how can we be happy throughout eternity if we don't fare well at the judgment seat? I mean, some aren't going to do as well as others, it appears. We have to keep this in perspective. We've just been raptured. We're in heaven. While we're in heaven getting married, there's things happening on earth. Our future is promised. Our future is secure. Heaven's going to be greater than anything we could ever imagine, and Jesus is going to be with us all the time. The analogy is that some people graduate from high school with rewards. Cum laude, magna cum laude, summa cum laude. Some people have scholarships to go to school. But everybody graduates and everybody has an incredible future ahead of them. So what should our attitude be towards this judgment seat? I'm firmly convinced that Jesus can't wait to reward us for what we've done. I think he yearns to do it. I think it's going to bring a smile to his face to be able to hand you your rewards at the judgment seat. In fact, that, in addition to the fact that he's provided salvation for you, should give us a sense of joy and happiness and looking forward to that moment. It should change the way we live. We spoke last week of the rapture and why I believe that rapture is going to occur before the tribulation. I don't want to re-preach that, but I do want to go back to a couple points. We talked last week about how the church is not mentioned between Revelation 4 and Revelation 18. Revelation 19, the church returns. And we read, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Note that the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. Past tense. Both of those have occurred before the second coming of Christ. It was granted to her, rewarded to her, to clothe herself in fine linen, the righteous deeds of the saints. She has been brought to the Father's house. She has prepared for the wedding at the judgment seat. She's been determined to be worthy. She has been given the righteous deeds. Her righteous deeds have been given back to her as white linen clothing to clothe herself in. She is beautifully adorned 
in bright, fine linen. Now, it's interesting. Remember when I said the bride and groom go away for seven days? Right? It's interesting that the tribulation is called a week. It's seven years, but it's called a week. And while we are being adorned, rewarded for what we've done, glorified, given our, our, our righteousness back, and while we're being reunited with Jesus in an incredible way, the rest of the world is going through the tribulation. At the end of the seven-day period, they will emerge and call out for the wedding feast. The wedding feast is a community celebration where everyone, all the friends of the bride, everybody is invited to the wedding feast. It's similar to the wedding reception. The marriage of the lamb is more personal, more intimate, limited to a limited number of people, including the father. But the marriage supper of the lamb is something totally different. They both have the word marriage in them, but it's like the wedding ceremony and the reception. The marriage of the Lamb is us being reunited with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and being joined together, and that covenant is finalized. But the wedding reception is going to happen at a different location. And it'll happen after Jesus returns to earth with us. A lot of people don't really distinguish those. But at the end of the seven-day period, we will be presented as the bride of Christ. The Bible says the bride and the bridegroom will emerge... Revelation 9.14, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That's us. Coming back with him. So who are the guests to the wedding feast? I mean, if the wedding itself is between the Holy Spirit and God the Father and God the Son and us, that's the ceremony. Who gets invited to the feast? Well, bride and groom aren't invited to the feast. They're already there. In Jewish tradition, it's the friends, family, and others who knew the couple well, and they're all invited to celebrate. John the Baptist. One of the Old Testament saints says something very interesting. He said in John 3.29 that he was a friend of the bridegroom. Hmm, didn't call himself a bride, called himself a friend. These Old Testament saints will be in heaven. They'll have their reward, but they are not the church. They're not the bride of Christ. They're the friends of the bride and the bridegroom. And so all the believing who have died from Adam all the way up through Christ, when Jesus returns to earth, will be resurrected and invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. The guests will be all the Old Testament saints who aren't part of the Bride of Christ, those who are in Christ in the New Testament. Does that make sense? I know it's confusing. Okay. But basically, in order to be in Christ, you have to accept Jesus. That makes you the Bride of Christ, the covenant relationship that you bought into. 
When Jesus returns with us, everybody who ever believed in a future Messiah will be resurrected and invited to the wedding feast. And that's why God says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast. The wedding feast will be held after the second coming during the millennial earth. And everybody who's ever been a believer will be invited to come to that feast and celebrate what God has done. So the host is the Father, the bridegroom is Jesus, the bride is the church, and the guests are the Old Testament and tribulation saints. That completes the wedding of the Lamb. Jesus paid the price for his bride, the church. We accepted the invitation to join him. We unite with him in a covenant relationship forever. We mark that covenant through communion and we repetitively mark it. Our drinking the wine symbolizes our acceptance. The Father accepted the price that was paid for us and sealed the promise of Jesus' return for us with the Holy Spirit. When the Father determines that the time is right and prepared, He will send the Son in the clouds to rapture us. All who believe in Christ will rise to meet Him in the clouds and will be given our resurrection bodies. Jesus will lead us away from earth to the Father's house where He's prepared the room for us. In order for God to remain just and righteous, we the bride have to be judged, prepared, and clothed in the righteousness of God, the white linen. While we're in heaven preparing and celebrating our marriage with Christ, the world will be going through the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, we will emerge with Christ, return to earth to complete God's judgment, and bind and defeat Satan. And when Jesus returns, every Old Testament saint and everyone who's ever been martyred during the tribulation will be resurrected and given their glorified bodies. Those who survive the tribulation as humans will enter the millennial kingdom as humans and they will populate the millennial kingdom and we will get into that later. Don't let your mind blow up here. (laughs) Everyone, however, who has believed in Jesus as the Messiah or Jesus himself will be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. It will be incredible. And later on I will prove to you that it is a barbecue. Okay, the Bible says very clearly, meat will be served. Okay, so how are we supposed to live with all this? Message is clear, the rapture should change everything about us. The idea of the rapture, the truth of the rapture should change our hearts. The reality of the rapture moves people who are wavering about whether or not to make a decision for Christ. When you begin to embrace that he could return at any moment, there's a sense of urgency of I can't play around with this decision too long. The reality of the rapture, when it motivates our heart, it should motivate us to care about those who are lost. When we really begin to understand that he could come back tonight, if God said, I'm coming back tonight, you have one phone call to make, who are you going to call? It should motivate us to make those calls because it could be tonight. Rapture has a cleansing perspective or change on sinful hearts. 
Knowing as believers that not only could Jesus return tonight, but we could be sitting in front of the judgment of God tonight may change the way we look at what we're doing today. It may change the way we steward God's resources. It may change the way we prioritize our life. The reality of the rapture also has a calming influence when our heart is unsettled. When we see the world around us going crazy, the truth of the rapture helps us kind of calm down and understand that these things must happen. Do not be troubled, Jesus says. The reality of the rapture brings us comfort when our hearts are grieving. We could be reunited tonight with all the people that we've lost with the people that we long for. If Jesus comes back tonight, we're going to see those people. Helps our grieving heart. The reality of the rapture also moves serving hearts. I need to go help people. I don't know how long I have here, but, but I need to make sure that I'm caring for other people, not just myself. I need to use the talents and gifts that I have to serve other people. Knowing that the judgment seat of Christ awaits us, man, that should change the way we serve Christ. The white linens that we wear at the wedding feast will be our own righteous deeds. The crazy thing is you get to develop your own wedding attire. Hmm. These deeds aren't so that we can enter heaven. God's already told us that's going to happen. However, what we wear to the wedding feast will be the garment that we sew ourselves. You are right now creating your wedding garment by the deeds that you do, by the way you handle God's resources, by the people that you talk to, by the motivation of your heart to help other people. The way we're dressed on that day will depend on how we have lived for Christ. We should think about how we treat other believers. How we employ our God-given talents and abilities. Knowing that the judgment seat is coming should impact the way we use our money. How we choose to endure personal injustice and being mistreated. How we go through trials and suffering. How we spend and prioritize our time. How we run the particular race that God has given us. How many souls we witness to and win for Christ. How much the rapture means to us and changes our lives. How faithful we are to the truth of God's word and God's people. How hospitable we are to strangers and those in needs. How faithful we are in our vocations and actions how we support others in their ministries, and how we use our tongues. Everything should change for us. That's why God said, if you study the book of Revelation, you will be blessed. It changes your entire perspective, and we haven't even opened the book yet. 
Next week, by the way. We're actually going to open Revelation. Book, chapter week number nine. But more importantly, knowing that we're Christ's bride changes the way we see ourselves. Changes the value that we put on ourselves. Makes us realize how desperately Jesus is preparing to come back and not get us, get you. That he's preparing a room for you. That he is there organizing and thinking about being with you for eternity. That he can't wait till the Father says he can come get you. And he can see your excitement and he can bring you to the Father's house. And he can prepare you and he can make sure that you get the rewards that you're to get. And he'll be so excited because you are finally, finally home. Man, the rapture changes everything when you start thinking about it. You start realizing the price that was paid for us. That when Jesus was on the cross pouring out his blood, being treated unjustly, he knew in his heart that that day would come when you would be in the Father's house because of what he's done. That's the price. He knows the promise that he's made. I'm coming back. Be ready. He knows the rewards that are waiting for us. I was thinking about that this week. Stephen's house. I saw pictures in the rooms where there were things waiting for the children. The children didn't even know that they were going to get these things. But when they walked in the room, it was there for them. Because people had prepared a room for them. And our rooms are specific and unique for us. And there will be rewards waiting for us. And a Savior who can't wait to give them to us. And here's the crazy thing. That's just the beginning. <laughs> That's the beginning of eternity. It's not the end. It's the start. God tells us that our mind can't even conceive the things that he has planned for us. Man, if that doesn't fire us up, get a defibrillator or something. <laughs> this is incredible stuff. We have been given the most enormous gift that we do not deserve. There is a day on our horizon that should have us fired up every time we wake up. Today could be the day. It should change everything about our heart and everything about what we do. And it starts with the realization that at some point the Father's going to say, Now. Let's pray. God, I thank you. That you wanted us to be ready. You wanted us to know. You didn't want us to doubt. You didn't want us to wonder. You promised us. And God, we don't know how long it is until you say now. But God, if we're on earth, please, we want to be ready. And God, if you decide that, that some of us won't survive till next week, then we're going to see you even sooner, maybe. And we want to make sure we're ready, too. So God, would you allow the truth of the rapture, the reality of this amazing book of Revelation and the prophecies that lead to it, to, to just change the way we view ourselves and view you and change the way that we deal with everything in our lives. 
He said we'd be blessed if we studied this book. God, I pray we not only study it, but we embrace it. And that it becomes our reality. God, please don't let this information stay in our head. Make sure it moves our heart. Do whatever you got to do to move this into our heart. God, for those who may be sitting here and not know you, and they know that if you came back tonight, they'd be left behind. Oh, God, would you reveal to them how true this is? Would you speak to them in some way so that they know? And God, help us to process with them. God, those in our lives who have heard the truth and rejected it, would you begin to move their hearts too? To show us how we're to reach them. God, we've told them so many times that they've stiff-armed us. Stiff-armed you. God, please don't let us give up. You actually have a crown waiting for us. For those we share the gospel with. And God, here's the crazy thing. When we get those crowns, the Bible says we're going to throw them and cast them at the altar. That they're going to be meaningless to us in the presence of you. But what they allow us to do is worship you. That by throwing our crowns down at the altar, we're taking everything in our lives that has ever mattered to you spiritually, and we're throwing it down because it means nothing compared to what you've done for us. God, help us understand that. And please, God, don't leave us where we're at. When you come back for your church, I pray Remnant is standing strong and pure and white and beautiful and ready. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I get fired up about Revelation. A um, couple quick announcements and then we're going to go. Uh, there's food in the back as always, so uh, make sure to say thanks to those who prepare that. We, they, they do incredible work um, and every week, time after time. Happy Bucket's in the back. Uh, we are in the process of trying to reach some people and look at some new ministry opportunities, mission opportunities in particular. Uh, so please, give to God. And, and I can say that because you, you may not know that, but most of our pastors, we're volunteers. So what comes in here goes out. So let's make sure that we are doing the things God's asked us to do with our resources. Next thing I want you to know, next week... Um, we're going to have a back-to-school day for the kids. Uh, we'll have a water slide. Uh, I'm going to cook hamburgers out on the grill. That's a warning for you. Because um, all Texans think they know how to bark. Okay, anyway. All right. Um, and we're just going to have a great time. The ice cream truck will be here. So if you know kids in the neighborhood or parents, it's a great time to bring them. Uh, we'll be uh, opening the book of Revelation. So you can start reading chapter 1 if you want. Uh, and next week we'll be... Um, We'll be doing that. Next thing is I sent a thing out to partners this week about our need for coverage in the children areas. The sign-up sheet is out in the lobby. Uh, if you're new, I would love to meet you. Um, why don't you stand up for me? Guys, this is going to be hard for us, but live this week like a bride. I know that sounds weird. But Jesus is coming back for us, and it's going to be the greatest experience of our lives. And just as a bride looks forward to her wedding day from the time she's about this tall, we need to live looking forward to the day when Jesus comes back. He's coming back. 
make sure you're ready. Have a great week. We love you. We'll see you out back. Thanks.